Let's open our Bibles to Nehemiah chapter 3. I want to just read the first verse and then we'll continue giving you the thought that we had last lesson of their organization and distribution on the walls. But let's just read the first verse. Nehemiah 3 verse 1. Then Elisha, the high priest, rose up with his brethren, the priests, and they builded the sheep gate. They sanctified it and set up the doors of it, even under the tower of Mia. They sanctified it under the tower of Hananel. Uh, we'll read on down in just a moment. But I want you to see, last lesson I mentioned that Nehemiah, first of all, he inspected in the second chapter. He inspected the ruins. Then he exhorted the people. He says, let us rise up and build the walls. And then here we find that they begin to do this work. And as we look at this first verse, we find the priest led in it. He began, he was the first one mentioned here. And the names of these people that assisted in building the walls and hanging these gates back up and repairing and whatever they did, it shows that each and every one took a part. And certainly the priests should be the leaders in that. And you find that in verse 1. In verses 12 and 19, or 12 through 19, you'll find the rulers. Just glance down at verse 12. Notice the ruler of the half part of Jerusalem. And there are rulers mentioned many times. So the rulers took part. We find in verse 12 also, uh, this man and his daughters, they all took part. And then there were craftsmen, verse 8 says, the goldsmiths and the apocryphies, they took part. So you have there the jewelers and pharmacists. You have in verse uh, 9, a ruler mentioned, and the ruler in verse 12, these would be men of influence. You have all kinds of people uh, that were joined in this work. So there was organization, there was distribution, they each had a place, as we'll see the distribution as we progress with our studies, because they were around the whole city doing a part of their assigned work. So each and every one had a part, so we see that there was uh, not only organization and distribution, but there was cooperation. It seems like that you don't find anyone complaining about the position that they had to, to fill and the work that they had to do. Isn't that great that you have people doing the work for God and no one's complaining about what they have, what job they have? I like that, don't you? I like that in a church. That everyone cooperates and that we just go along and say it's all for God, it's not for us anyway. And a few years we'll be gone and our service for the Lord is what really is going to count. You know, there's a little thing, most of you read it in time past, it's pretty common. It says, only one life will soon be passed. Only what's done for Christ will last. And that's exactly what it amounts to. And so if we can serve God the best way we know how, well, it's going to work out all right. So, so much for the idea of what uh, Nehemiah was doing in organizing. But I want you to notice specifically tonight as we teach these uh, lessons, uh, the various gates and their symbolical meaning. Remember we gave you in Isaiah chapter, let me find it, Isaiah chapter 60 and verse 18 in our, one of the lessons. I think it was the last one and maybe even before. Isaiah 60 verse 18 says this, Violence shall no more be heard in thy land, wasting nor destruction within thy borders. But thou shalt call, now listen carefully, thou shalt call thy walls salvation and thy gates praise. So we find that in studying this third chapter of Nehemiah, that we might say there are 
uh, symbolical or typical or they form an allegory. Remember, Paul himself justified this in pointing out Mount Sinai and, and uh, Jerusalem and Hagar and uh, Sarah. And he says these things and their sons, Ishmael and Isaac, are an allegory or they're, they're a, a parable or they're a typical. And Paul used that language in the New Testament, so we know it's justifiable in some places, and we don't want to spiritualize things that should not be, because sometimes people spiritualize and tell spiritual lies at the same time, because you can go too far with it. But I believe these gates are very symbolical. And when we find the use of this first one, we'll know that it, it is very symbolical. Let's read verse 1 again, and we'll give you the gates in this uh, uh, third chapter. It says, Then Elisha the high priest rose up with his brethren, the priests, and they builded the sheep gate. Now, sheep gate reminds us of Christ, the Lamb of God, that taketh away the sin of the world. John, John says, Behold the Lamb of God, which takes away the sin of the world. Uh, it was through these, this sheep gate that they, not where the sheep would go in and out of the city and be protected within it and go out, it was a gate where they were led in and they were ready for sacrificial uh, offering, to be offered. A sacrifice. And it was where the sacrificial lambs were brought in. I want you to notice some things about this sheep gate. It reminds us then of the cross of Christ where he uh, died for our sins. It reminds us of the fact that uh, here you find it was sanctified. There's no Notice the verse. It says, and they sanctified it. Evidently with ceremony or with offerings or sacrifices or something. And this is the only of these other gates that was sanctified. And we know that... Christ's work was set apart by God. His work on the cross, God the Father set him apart from everything else and everyone else. And his sacrifice was sanctified. And I want you to notice something else about this gate. If you uh, notice others, for instance, glance down at verse 3. This next one, fish gate, it has locks and bars. But this one, sheep gate, there's no mention of locks or bars upon it. The door if this is the door of salvation, it's open to the sinner and to all sinners who repent, who are convicted of sin and turn to God in faith. When the Holy Spirit convicts them and God uh, speaks to their heart and they're definitely spoken to by God's Word and God's Spirit, and then they turn to God, there's room for them to come. And the gates are not shut. No locks and no bars. So this first one is typical of of uh, Christ, the Lamb of God. Now, I want you to read on down. And you'll find in verse 2 says, And next unto him builded the men of Jericho, and next to them builded Zachur, the son of Imra. Next to him, next to him. This shows the cooperation of the people as they were going around from one gate to another and the wall, the space that was between them. I don't know how many of you have ever seen a picture of... Uh, I have several little maps showing the city walls. I doubt if you can see it from there. But anyway, maybe I can point it out just a little bit. Right at the top, there's Sheep Gate. And then the Fish Gate, that's the north part. And the Fish Gate, and then Valley Gate, and Dung Gate, and Fountain Gate, and Water Gate, and, and uh, Horse Gate, and East Gate. It comes right around the city, starting from the uh, north uh, east corner, and then it goes... Fish gates on the, the, it would be the northwest corner, and then down the west side, and then back up the east side to Sheep Gate again. And that's the order in which we will see these gates repaired. And the walls, you can see that from one to another, 
for instance, from the first one, Sheepgate to Fishgate, it's all across the northern part of the ancient city Jerusalem. We have the modern line, too, pointed out, the present old city wall and various other walls on this map. And I'll let you look at it when the service is over. It's not of too much importance except to show you that there was wall space between these gates is what I wanted to get at, and that these people build it between them. Now let's look at the symbolical meaning of the next one. If you look in verse 3, it says, But the fish gate did the sons of uh, Hassanah build, who also laid the beams thereof, and set up the doors thereof, and locks thereof, and bars thereof. Now then, after a person comes through sheep gate, after you're born again, after you accept Christ as the Lamb of God, the first thing that you're to do is what? Become fishers of men. Jesus said, come after me. Come, follow me, and I will make you to become fishers of men. And if we use a symbolical meaning as we progress around these uh, gates of the city, we'll find that there's a great deal of uh, progress in the right direction because they're very symbolical of many things. The fish gate is to be opened up again. We need to go in and out, don't we? And go out of the city. Become fishers of men. Then I want you to notice, it says in verse 4, And next unto them repaired. There's some things that were builded, some things that were repaired. Verse 4. And next unto them repaired Merimah, the son of Urijah, the son of Kos. And next unto them repaired Meshalem, the son of Berachai, the son of Meshazebel. And next unto them repaired Zadok, the son of Banna. And next unto them the Tekoites repaired. Now, I want you to notice verse 5, this statement in verse 5. But their nobles put not their necks to the work of their Lord. There's always someone that's not going to do anything. And notice who it was, the nobles. The nobles put not their necks to the work of their Lord. Now, then you get to verse 6 and you have another gate. Moreover, the old gate repaired Jehada, the son of Passia, and Meshalem, the son of Besarda, they laid the beams thereof and set up the doors thereof and the locks thereof and the bars thereof. Now, what is this third gate? You might want to highlight these gates or mark them. Verse 1 was sheep gate. Verse 3 is fish gate. And verse 6 is old gate. Old gate. And this reminds us of what Jeremiah said. Let me read two verses of Scripture. Jeremiah 18 verse... Well, let's read my, uh, Jeremiah 6 verse 16 and then 18 verse 15. 6 verse 16 says this, Thus saith the Lord... Stand ye in the ways, and see, and ask for the old paths. This old gate reminds us of the old paths. Old paths, wherein is the good way. And he says, and walk therein, and ye shall find rest for your souls. But they said, we will not walk therein. The old paths are the good way. We have a lot of people looking for new paths instead of the old paths. God's Word tells us to ask for the old paths. Chapter 18, verse 15 says... Because my people have forgotten me, they have burned incense to vanity. This is what they were doing, committing idolatry. They were idolaters. And they have caused them to stumble in their ways, in their ways from the ancient paths. We have people now stumbling in their ways from the ancient paths. The things that God has said about. To walk in, in paths in a way not cast up. They've forgotten me. They started becoming idolaters. And they cause others to stumble in their ways. And their ways are from the ancient paths. Walking not in the ways of God. To walk in the paths in a way not cast up. In a way that is separate from the way of God. We have people walking in the old paths today, don't we? And we have a few wanting to walk in 
not in the old paths, but in some way that is apart from what God has designated. They're always wanting something new. And they gossip about, about it and talk about it. All this new way that they've got figured out. You say, preacher, you're too old-fashioned. Well, in Acts chapter 17, let me read a verse. Verse 21 says, For all the Athenians and strangers which were there spent their time in nothing else but to, but either to tell or to hear some new thing. That's what people are about today. They got to either tell or to hear some new thing. The, the Word of God is too old-fashioned. The Old Testament's too old-fashioned. The Bible itself is too old-fashioned. And they say, well, we, have you heard on television sometime they'll make a remark about put that away, put the Bible away, and start living uh, a modern life and think new things? There are a lot of those people I've heard make statements like that. Well, I'm going to stick with this. I don't have that long left to, to, to go, and so I'm going to just keep on sticking with this. God's Word. So, And we read on down. We've already given you in verse uh, 8 where the... You had the goldsmiths. Let's just glance at it. Verse 8, the goldsmiths. In verse 8, also the pharmacists. And uh, verse 9, you have the rulers. In verse 10, you have uh, various ones. And next unto them repaired. In verse 12, next unto him repaired. And then in verse 13, the valley gate repaired Hannah. The valley gate. What's the valley gate? Down in the valley. Or down on your knees, or humility. Notice the progress in these gates. Sheep gate, the Lamb of God, which taketh away the sin of the world. Fish gate, Jesus said, come and follow me if you follow the Lamb of God, and I will make you to become fishers of men. And then the old gate, he says, I'll teach you the Word of God, the way you ought to live. And he gave us the Beatitudes and uh, in Matthew 5-7. through 7. And he te- said, Moses didn't come to destroy the law, but to fulfill I came not to destroy, but to fulfill. He says, Moses gave you the law, but I came not to destroy the law, but to fulfill the law. And he teaches us uh, the old things, but he also teaches us grace in the new covenant. But at the same time, he teaches us humility. James 4, verse 6 says, God resisteth the proud, but giveth grace unto the humble. Now then, we need to learn, and we have to learn, to be humble before God. God is almighty. He's all-powerful. We all must give an account of ourselves and our life to God. There's going to come a time, uh, Paul says, we must all stand before the judgment seat of Christ. So, it pays us to be humble. We ought to be humble in all things. We ought to be humble as far as before God and, and as far as our work and service before others. Jesus warned about being proud. He said that God is able to resist the proud. He can bring men down. And He tells us when we do anything, uh, take heed that you do not your alms before men to be seen of them. Right? Don't try to show off in what you're doing, but to do it before God. The Bible teaches that our service and our work is before the Lord. Luke chapter, look at Luke chapter 1. Give you just a key to talking about some things sometimes when you're thinking about how your service should be rendered and it should be before God. In Luke chapter 1, I want you to notice this uh, verse. Verse 74 and 75. Luke 1, 74 and 75. It says that He would grant unto us, that's by grace, isn't it? That He would grant unto us that we being delivered out of the hand of our enemies might serve Him without fear in holiness and righteousness. Now look at this. Before Him all the days of our life. How is our service? That we might serve Him in holiness and righteousness. It says before Him. If we 
realize that our service is before God. You know, I perform wedding ceremonies, and the Bible teaches this very truth that we try to to present to people at the wedding ceremony. Witness before God and before men. They couples take an oath to be faithful to each other. Not just before a couple of witnesses that stand up and sign the marriage license, but before God. If we have more marriages like that, you take it serious enough. And I usually have a prayer at the end and and uh, remind the couple that's married to realize this that they've not that they've taken these witnesses not only before men but before God. And that their vows that they pledge of faith to each other should be also, they should, they should be mindful of them so that in times of problems and trials in their lives, they'll look back and say, look, we promised each other before God that we'd try to live uh, the way that the vows are repeated. And I, I think nowadays people pay least attention to those kind of things. But I think we need to be reminded of them again. I want you to notice in verse 13 then, valley gate. That's humility. In verse 14, but the dung gate. This is the place where the refuse of the city was taken out. It was repaired. What does it remind us of? Filthiness, rubbish, trash. It has to be taken care of. The trash in our lives, in our minds, and in our spirits has to be taken care of. In 2 Corinthians 7, verse 1, Paul says, Having therefore these promises, dearly beloved, listen carefully, let us cleanse ourselves of all filthiness of the flesh and of the Spirit. Now, that's our spirit that is filthy. And of the Spirit, perfecting holiness in the fear of God. Now, only God can give us complete cleansing. But as a Christian, we're responsible to take, care, uh, take the responsibility of cleaning up our minds and asking God to get... Uh, wicked thoughts and wicked things and evil things and evil doings away from us. The, the psalmist said, Re- remove, remove me far, uh, remove far from me, he says, remove far from me vanity and lies. What does he say? Vanity and lies. Remove far from me vanity and lies. He didn't say, remove me far from vanity and lies. That would be the vanity and lies over here and I want to get away from. But remove far from me vanity and lies. It's from within us, and our corruption is from within. Our wickedness and sin is from within. We need to take care of it. Cleanse ourselves from all filthiness of the flesh and of the Spirit, perfecting wholeness in the fear of God. Now then, when we get to the next gate, it's fountain gates. You'll find that in verse 15. But the gate of the fountain, when you get to that one, we're reminded of the order of these three. First, there's valley gate. That's humility, right? Note the order. And then there's dung gate, that's cleansing. And then there's valley gate, that is symbolical of being filled with the Holy Spirit. So, we need humility and cleansing before there will be the infilling of the Holy Spirit. So, verse 15 says, But the gate of the fountain repaired Shalom, the son of Kehoseth. Now then, the gate of the fountain. What do you think of when you think of fountain gate? Jesus said in John 4, 4 verse 14, But whoso drinketh of the water that I shall give him shall never thirst. But the water that I shall give him shall be in him a well of water, springing up into everlasting life. So the new birth and the Holy Spirit coming in to our hearts and lives. Let me read in John chapter 7, verse 37 through 39. In the last day, that great day of the feast, Jesus stood and cried, saying, If any man thirst, let him come unto me and drink. He that believeth on me, as the Scripture has said, 
Out of his belly shall flow rivers of living water. Fountain gate. The fountain giving forth rivers of living water. Verse 39. But this spake he of the Spirit, which they that believe on him should receive. For the Holy Ghost was not yet given, because Jesus, that Jesus was not yet glorified. He spake of what? This fountain gate springing up into everlasting life. Rivers of water. What? His filling of the Holy Spirit. We know Jesus gave that woman at the well living water, and she went away and to the city and said, Come see a man which told me all things that ever I did. Now you know, as you look down in your Bible, you'll see in verse 16 it says, After him. Verse 17 says, After him repaired. Verse 18, After him repaired. Verse 19, and next to him. And after him, verse 20. See these? It shows that each one filled a place around the wall. Verse 22, and after him. Verse 23, after him repaired. Benjamin and so on. Verse 24, after him. Verse 26 says, moreover the Nethanims, and these were of the Levites. And there's a whole story about them and a whole study about them that I won't get into. I just mention it. Dwelt in Ophel. Under the place over against the water gate toward the east and the tower that lieth out. The water gate. This was one that was named. This reminds us of the Word of God. And by the way, if you'll notice, it doesn't say that they repaired anything about it. If it's symbolical of the Word of God, it needs no repairing. The Bible says all Scripture is given by inspiration of God and is profitable. It's good like it is. For doctrine, reproof, for correction, for instruction in righteousness, that the man of God may be perfect, truly furnished into all good works. The Word of God doesn't need any repair. That's 2 Timothy 3, verse 16. And by the way, this reminds us of the Word of God because both Ezra, in the book of Ezra, and in the book of Nehemiah, I believe it's chapter 8, verse 1. Let's see. Chapter 8. All the people gathered themselves together as one man into the street that was before the water gate. And they spake unto Ezra the scribe to bring the book of the law of Moses, which the Lord had commanded to Israel. And Ezra the priest brought the law before the... See, it's word of God. This is where the law was read. Ezra the priest brought the law before the congregation, both the men and women, and all that could hear with understanding upon the first day of the seventh month. And he read therein before the street that was before the water gate from mid... From the morning until midday. From morning till midday. And then sometimes we complain about a sermon being 35, 40, 50 minutes long. And he read from morning till midday, right? Alright. So, Watergate is symbolical of the Word of God. You know, we've got people trying to repair it today. I mean, there's all kinds of versions and perversions. Aren't there? All kinds of things. And a lot of the things that come out are really very, very unscriptural. There are some that try to interpret the Scripture pretty close. And I don't mean that all the intentions are wrong, though I kind of expect in some places that there may be the wrong motivation too. But that's not for me to judge. God will take care of that. But I know this, that the Bible says that all Scripture is given by inspiration of God. It says, holy men of God spake as they were moved by the Holy Ghost, that we have a... The Word of God before us, and we need to read it and study it and to understand what God's Word has to say. And let me just briefly say that in commenting on the Scriptures, Harry Truman at one time, the great Harry Truman that says the book stops here, he said, he said, 
concerning the King James Version of the Bible, and these other ones were coming out, he says, I don't see why that when you have a good thing, some people come along and try to mess it up. And that's what he said concerning changing and all the other versions that were coming out. Now then, let's look at this. It says uh, down in verse 28, from above the horse gate. What does the horse in the Scripture remind you of? Warfare. You know, they had their horses, battle horses. And uh, Isaiah warns not to trust in horses. Let me see if I can find it. Isaiah, 20, uh, Isaiah 31, verse 1. It says, Woe to them that go down to Egypt for help and stay on horses and trust in chariots because they are many and horsemen because they are very, very strong. But they look not unto the Holy One of Israel, neither seek the Lord. There's a time that men look to worldly help and their uh, machinery of warfare more than they look to God. And that's a great mistake, too, to get confident in your war power because things can happen that you lose the battle anyway. I don't mean we shouldn't have a strong defense, but I mean we ought to put God first in the whole matter. So you, you have this one that reminds us of the fact that you and I are in a warfare as well. Do we have a battle to fight, too? The Bible says, Thou therefore endure hardness, Paul tells Timothy, as a good soldier of Jesus Christ. Someone said, I don't want to be a soldier. Well, if you're a child of God and you're a servant of God and you belong to the Lord, there may be a time you'll have to do battle. You'll have to be as a good soldier of Jesus Christ. You have to endure some hardness. I think most of you know what I'm talking about. For, for your testimony and for what you stand for, you're going to have to fight the battle. You can't just compromise with every enemy that comes along and say, oh, that's all right, you can just... Just I'll just give up the fort just because you have these cults on every hand or various popular uh, things in the theological world or so-called Christian world that want to come in and just take over and say, well, you know, you don't have to stand for that. And they want you to compromise your convictions. You know, that happens all the time. And uh, But if you're going to fight the battle, Paul told Timothy, he says, you have to endure hardness as a good soldier of Jesus Christ. And he said to something else. He says, no man uh, fights the warfare, entangles himself with the affairs of this life. The affairs of this life, many things, will try to sidetrack you from taking your stand for the Lord. Now, I want you to notice something else. When you come down to verse uh, 29, it says, the keeper of the east gate, after them repaired, verse 29, and then it goes down here in the last part of it, it says, the keeper of the east gate. What does the east remind you of? Malachi 4 verse 2 says, But unto you that fear my name shall the Son of Righteousness arise with healing in His wings. It reminds us of the second coming of Christ. He's coming from the east. The glory at one time of Israel departed from the temple from that way, and then it was returned. It will return in the same way. Let me read in the book of Ezekiel chapter 10 and verse 18. Then the glory of the Lord departed from off the threshold of the house. On down in verse 19 it says, And everyone stood at the door of the east gate of the Lord's house, and the glory of God, the God of Israel, was over uh, over them above. It departed from the temple. But later, the same Ezekiel saw God's glory return, and it returned from the way of the east. In the book of Ezekiel 43 after, in verse 1, Afterward he brought me to the gate, even the gate that looketh toward the east. And behold, the glory of the God of Israel came from the way of the east. The glory of the God of Israel came from the way of the east. 
and his voice was like the noise of many waters, and the earth shined with his glory. Verse 4 says, And the glory of the, of the Lord came into the house by the way of the gate, whose prospect is toward the east. So the Spirit took me up and brought me into the inner court, and behold, the glory of the Lord filled the house. It had departed from the house, but then it came back. And it's symbolical of Christ's coming. The Bible tells us that Christ shall come. And the east speaks of his coming. Now then, we find another scripture here. If you'll notice, gate Mithcad, that's in verse 31. Look at verse 31. We're about finished. After him repaired, and then at the bottom of the verse, over against the gate Mithcad, and to the going up of the corner. Mithcad has a great deal of meaning. It means judgment, or it means accountable, account, to give an account. And after Christ comes, what shall happen to all of us as Christians? We shall all stand before the judgment seat of Christ. You and I as Christians will be judged, not be whether we're saved or lost, because if we're in that judgment seat of Christ, we wouldn't be there unless we were saved. But we'll be judged according to our works. First Corinthians chapter 3 says, Every man's work shall be tested or tried of what sort it is. It might be like gold and silver or precious stones or wood, hay, and stubble. And whatever kind will stand the test of fire, your works will stand the test of fire. Then Paul tells, tells us again in the book of Second Corinthians chapter 5, he says that we shall all give an account of the deeds done in the body, whether they be good or bad, at the judgment seat of Christ. Again, that's chapter 5 of Second Corinthians. The first one is First Corinthians chapter 3. The next one, Second Corinthians chapter 5, down about 8 through 10. And then, not only our whole life, the deeds done in the body, but our fellowship. It says, judge one another, not anymore. Because why do we judge one another? He says, we shall all stand before the judgment seat of Christ. That's Romans chapter 14, beginning with about verse 10 through 14. So if you study those three things, that's the th- these are the things that Christians are going to give an account of. So I examine myself and say, how am I doing as far as my works of what sort it is. Will they stand the test of fire? What sort it is? That means what motivates. What 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 is it all about? Is it like gold and silver and precious stones, or is my are my works like wood and hay and stubble and they'll go up in smoke? And then I examine myself and say, what about my whole life as a Christian? Am I just going to uh, blunder through it and make all kinds of uh, serious mistakes, and then at the same time do them on purpose? It's not so bad to make a mistake, but when you just keep on following bad mistakes, you need to learn by some of them you make and try to do better. And then we're going to be held accountable for how we do live in this life. And then the third thing, how is our fellowship in the church and with the brethren and with one another? We have to keep that right too. And that all of these things take much self-examination because we shall all stand before the judgment seat of Christ. Now I want you to notice the last verse of this chapter. It says this, And between the going up of the corner under the sheep gate, you come right back to what gate you started with in verse 1. You started with sheep gate in verse 1. You ended up with sheep gate in verse 32. So, it means this to me, that as far as you go, you can go in all of your... This may be symbolical of our journey as a Christian and the things that are important in our Christian life. We know that becoming fishers of men is important. We know that holding to the old paths is important. We know that humility is important. We know that cleansing our lives up is important. We know that being filled with the Holy Spirit is important. 
And we know that sticking to the Word of God, Watergate, is important. And we know that looking for Christ's coming is important. But, and we know that considering the judgment seat of Christ, that that's important. But think of this. You come right back to Sheepgate. You're always returning to Christ, the Lamb of God, which taketh away the sin of the world. And even in glory, you read Revelation chapter 4 and chapter 5, and you'll find out that there was a lamb as it had been newly slain. And John identified, he says, Behold the lion of the tribe of Judah. And then he says, The lamb. He beheld after. The lion became a lamb. The lion of the tribe of Judah had prevailed to open the seals there. And he looked, and there was in the midst a lamb. The Lamb is the Lamb. Christ was of the tribe of Judah. But He was seen as newly slain. The Bible says that He was slain in sacrifice. So that when we get to glory, and that's talking about the redeemed in the book of Revelation chapter 4 and 5. When we get in God's presence, whether we die and go to be in the Lord uh, before uh, Christ comes, or if He comes and takes us up to heaven, to himself, and that happens in Revelation chapter 4, verse 1, symbolically. When that time comes, we're going to behold him as the same Christ that died on the cross, that shed his blood for us. We're going to behold him as the one who made it possible for us to be in heaven, and we're going to see him that way and know that it's because of the fact that he was that way that we're there, and that we can sing in Revelation 5 that song of the, they sang a new song. Thou hast redeemed us to God by thy blood out of every kindred, people, nation, and tongue. And hast made us kings and priests. And we're going to sing the song of redemption there because we've sung the song of redemption down here. I believe these gates are very symbolical and typical. In our next lesson, don't miss it because we'll find the trouble that Nehemiah and all of his workers go through and the opposition that they face in trying to do the work that God has laid upon their hearts to do. And the next chapter will show us that we, if we're going to do God's work, we're going to face opposition. And I mean severe, severe opposition. So let's be faithful. There's one verse of Scripture I read before I came to church. Let me just read it to you. And it was a great encouragement to, to me. It's in Jeremiah chapter 23, verse 28. It says, The prophet that hath a dream, let him tell a dream. It's like chaff. But he says, He that hath my word, he that hath my word, we have God's word, let him speak my word faithfully. That really got a hold of me. That the most important thing for you or I, and especially for myself as a preacher, if we have God's word, he says, let him speak my word faithfully. And he says, what is the chaff to the wheat, saith the Lord? The chaff of the dreams compared to the word of God. Is not my word like a... Fire, saith the Lord, and like a hammer that breaketh rock in pieces. And so we stick to the Word of God. And if you and I will do that, I think there will be someone that will want to hear it. I think someone will want to hear it. Thank you for your patience and your kind attention.